And there is no other place to stand before God than in the gospel with our sins forgiven through the blood of Christ. I first met Doug Crawford 13, almost 14 years ago, I think. Um, attended the Bible conference that you guys used to hold at West Cannon. Doug was pastor of West Cannon Baptist uh, for 42 years. And beginning in January, he began a transition to part-time there and part-time with Bridge Fellowship, our state association of churches, uh, the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches. And when we began talking about the changes, Ken Floyd retiring and the things that would be happening I was thrilled to actually come home from sabbatical and find out that Doug was interested in this role. Uh, Doug is a friend. It's been great to serve with him on the council, great now to serve with him in this important ministry of impacting churches throughout the state of Michigan. And so we're going to turn the rest of this time over to Doug. Lord, Doug, the Lord bless you as you come and uh, minister to us. My privilege. Thank you. It's a delight to be here this morning. And... uh... I'm honored to be in this body of believers today. It's been a pleasure to get to know uh, some of the early risers who were here at the first service, and then you all as well. Uh, It's a joy. Uh, Last time I spoke from this platform was 1995. Uh, We were looking at building a new building at West Cannon, where I pastor, and uh, we wanted, I'd seen your building, and uh, we brought a, a group of about 200 on buses and cars, and we came and had a Friday night service here, so our people could uh, look and see what a new auditorium might look like. And uh, you did a good job. Uh, we, all, we all left that night saying we would like an auditorium like that, and we built one that really reflects this model of a building and has served us well. So I feel a little bit at home. Your pastors over the years have had a positive influence on my life. Uh, some of you know Pastor Will Davis, who was here a while back, and uh, he was uh, just a delight and one of those mature men a godly man that when I was younger, um, no longer younger, I went on Medicare this week or last week, so some of you know what that means, and uh, so I'm in that club now. But Pastor Will Davis was just one of those strong, loving, godly men. I, I found a lot of blessing in knowing him. Mike Gallivell, the pastor for a while, uh, went to school with him and was in class. We, we joined in classes together, and that was a delight. And then to get to know your pastor, Bill, uh, what a delight also uh, to work with him. Over the past about nine months, we've really worked closely together. He's the chairman of what we call our Council of 16, 16 pastors from across the state who meet three times a year to kind of oversee the, the ministry that we have, and your pastor's the chairman of that group. And because I was coming into a new role, <clears throat> then we've been working really close together, and it's been a delight to me. Uh, he is a blessing to not only me, but to the fellowship. Uh, he gives strong leadership and is a very kind and loving pastor, as you well know. So as you know now, uh, Ken Floyd did retire uh, at the end of 2022 uh, as the executive director of the MARBC. We changed the name of the MARBC to Bridge Fellowship uh, a year ago uh, with Ken's leadership in that. You might say, well, why did you change the name of the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches? Well, part of it was that's a mouthful. It just took too long to introduce ourselves. People are already moving on. But there's also that sense of, what is a regular Baptist? Is it the Eeyore complex? I'm nothing special. I'm just regular. No? Is it something to do with coffee? No. 
We're not even going to go down the intestinal tract concept where some of you are going, shame on you. It was like, what does it mean? So I've been going around quite a bit and asking people, do you know what regular Baptist means? And no. Going back about 80 to 100 years when our fellowship really came out of the Northern Baptist Convention, there was a movement away out of that fellowship of churches, the Northern Baptist Convention, because they were moving into liberalism. They had dropped the commitment to the uh, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient word of God and began to now drop the other major doctrines. If the, if the Bible doesn't stand as the authority, God's revelation to us, then everything else is going to topple like dominoes. And the group that came out of that, uh, nationally, the General Association of Regular Baptists, and then in our state, the Michigan Association, they came out of that and they wanted to take a, a title that would reflect who we are. We're an association. We're, not, we're autonomous. Um, but also, we are regulated by the Word of God. If that was the downfall of the Northern Baptist Convention, we are going to stand on the regulated Word of God. And regular, in that time frame, communicated, regulated, and the context was by the Word of God. We've lost that sense. It's still a good name. It just doesn't mean the same thing in our contemporary culture. So as a leadership team, we began to look at what could we say, um, develop as a name that not only reflected who we are, but also a part of our vision and our mission that we are the Bridge Fellowship. Iconically, uh, a bridge in Michigan makes sense in a fellowship. We are churches, uh, members of the body of Christ who uh, fellowship together. And then our mission is we want to bridge the gap between churches that are in need and uh, have healthy churches minister with those who are struggling and with pastors who are in need. And then also to enjoy our fellowship, which is in Christ and sharing the responsibility of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in our own community, but across our state, and then ultimately throughout the world. We have a little video just to kind of give you an idea maybe of what that looks like, and maybe sink it into your mind while we are the Bridge Fellowship. If we can show that now, please. A bridge, a convenient way to get from one place to another. But it's so much more than that. Communities are brought together. Communities with churches. From a 30-member church in Escanaba to a 300-member church in Detroit, we are connected through more than just a bridge. We are all the body of Christ. And one time or another, every church, congregation, and pastor has had their own struggle and hardship it's easy to feel overwhelmed. So who will help these struggling churches? Bridge Fellowship is committed to connecting churches and pastors across our state to encourage and help one another fulfill the Great Commission. We're helping bridge the gap between churches and pastors, connecting hurting pastors and congregations with those who are healthy and thriving, coming alongside one another to help them grow inspiring and reminding each other that though things seem bleak for a moment, hope is within reach. Though we are independent, we are not isolated. Our leadership team is comprised of pastors serving churches in our state who understand these struggles and are ready to help with programs like pastoral support groups and church retreats. We want to see the hurting churches start to heal and the healthy churches start to help. 
Bridge Fellowship of Michigan. Connect, inspire, grow. I think that helps us to understand a little bit why we changed the name and what we're out to do. And until uh, September, I'm still the teaching pastor. My role has been reduced significantly at West Cannon. Uh, we've been developing a young man who's now preaching uh, two weeks a month while I'm gone. And uh, in the fall, in September, Zach will take the, the role, and I'll step back out of that role at West Cannon. Probably still partly uh, involved there, but my, making my main focus with Bridge Fellowship. When I was considering the possibility of helping with Bridge Fellowship and transitioning out of my current role, I had to really ask myself the question, is a, is a fellowship of churches in a state really a biblical concept? I know the local church is, and I've been, I've been very committed to that uh, all my ministry life. It's one of the reasons I stayed in one place. I really believe the importance of a, of a relationship, almost like a marriage, between a pastor and the congregation. So I had to begin to work in my mind, what, is there a foundation biblically that, that can support me making that transition? Where I ended up really finding the most help for me was in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's where we're going to be looking this morning for our sermon to understand what it is that God would have us to do as a local church, autonomous, but not isolated, responsible to and for other brothers and sisters around our state, really around the world as you do through your missions family uh, for the glory of God. It is our appreciation for and our commitment to the autonomy of the local church uh, that in doing that, that sometimes we begin to feel like we're not responsible for others. I want you this morning to see that we are responsible for and to the bride, bride of Christ. So I'd like to consider with you for a few moments the fellowship of churches that was actually present in the early church. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians about their need and responsibility He uh, identifies for us that there was a fellowship going on and that when we have a fellowship, it just kind of reflects or images what God was already doing in the early church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for just a moment and ask him to bless our study this morning. We are thankful, God, that we have your word. Thank you for those who in our, our history have stood up and said, we will divide over the authority of God's word. We will stand upon that firm foundation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the benefactors of that, and we we delight in that, and we want to be faithful now with what you've entrusted to us, a different stage in our lives, and then the life of the church, placed in a culture that is degrading. We watch it all around us, God. We pray that you would help us to not only be a, a bright light here in Portage at Berean Baptist, but help us to be a bright light in the state of Michigan as the body of Christ. For our world, our state certainly needs it. We ask for your blessing to give us eyes to see and ears to hear from the word of God that it might change our hearts and our minds and our actions for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to kind of fly over this text a little bit. I don't like to do that normally. We go verse by verse, but this morning... For our purposes, we're going to talk about what's going on in here, and you can go back later this afternoon or evening and read through it, and you're going to see kind of what we talked about, how it fits in the context of these two chapters. And as you do that, you would find that there's one word that is repeated multiple times. It is the word grace, or this favor, uh, this gift, 
this thanks. It's translating one word ten times, and the Greek word is charis. It is the word grace. And so this concept of grace is really important in these two chapters, that there is something that we're going to be doing or called to do that is founded in and rooted in grace and our understanding of grace. When we think about a fellowship of churches and bridging the gap between one another, we need to know that it's going to be motivated by grace. We are motivated by grace to help others. Here we find in our text the grace of God given among the Macedonians. Let's read some of the verses here, beginning in verse 1, and you'll begin to see that. Paul writing says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We'll talk about Macedonia in just a moment. For in a severe test of affliction, there, the churches in Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and actually beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, this desire to give, this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of the Lord of of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. We begin then in understanding the text, we see the grace of God given amongst the Macedonians. And the grace of God given amongst the Macedonians is this, that God in his mercy sent a son to bring salvation. A church was planted and birthed in Jerusalem. In Acts 1, we are told that by Jesus, after the Spirit comes upon you, followers of Christ in Jerusalem, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the north, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that uttermost parts of the earth included Macedonia. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch on the first missionary trip of Paul. And he goes up from Antioch around the bend of the Mediterranean Sea, so to speak, into the region of Galatia. And there he brings the gospel of Jesus Christ primarily to the Gentiles. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, you remember? He would go into the synagogues first and then go out of there, often kicked out, and then he would bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He came back at the end of chapter 14 and reported to the church in Antioch. In chapter 15, they had to deal with the church in Jerusalem, a huge problem. The Jews had to address the issue of Gentiles being born again and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what do you do with these Gentile believers? The Jews had been an ethnic, national type of religion, and now they are finding they had Gentiles, who they formerly called dogs, that were now a part of this family of God, this church of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 16 then, after that council, Paul is sent out, and he goes now on a trip with uh, Silas and uh, and. Timothy was it? i got to look at my notes here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Yeah, there we go. And, and, and they're sent out on their second missionary, Paul's second missionary trip. And he goes back up into the region of Galatia. You can read about it in chapter 16 of Acts. And it said they had no peace that the Holy Spirit would not allow them to go into the region of Galatia. And then Paul had a vision at night and said, go, it was a man from Macedonia, 
Go, come over, help us in the region of Macedonia, which was further to the west uh, from Galatia. And so that's where Paul went and his team. And their first ministry was in Philippi. And there they were beaten with rods, thrown into the prison, singing hymns at night. And the Philippian jailer comes to know Jesus Christ as Savior and his house. They go from Philippi down in chapter 17 of Acts to Thessalonica. And there they begin to bring the gospel into the synagogues. The outcry is so great among the Thessalonians that the believers take Paul and his team and drive them out by night uh, uh, to escape for their lives. And then they go south down into Berea and then down to Corinth. Paul is writing the letter to the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, from Corinth to the churches in Thessalonica in Macedonia. So when he talks about the Macedonians and the grace that they had received, the grace for them was they received the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that transformed their lives. And now they, because they were transformed by the gospel, they understood their relationship to the body of Christ was really important. It's interesting to note that in the, in the writing here in chapter 8, God's grace is actually the example for us in how to be gracious. What does it mean to be a grace giver in the context? Go down to verse 9 and you can see it. As you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may be made rich. You ever want to know what grace looks like? He says, all right, think about what Jesus did for you and gave up all that he had in the, in the courts of heaven, the Son of God, and came down and took on flesh and lived a sinless life and died in our place so that we might be made rich with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he has been seen by many after the resurrection, ascended into heaven, is coming again in power and glory. If you want to understand grace giving, think about Jesus Christ. That's what the Macedonians were doing. Notice some of the ways that they gift, gifted and graced others. They had a common sacrifice. Just as Christ gave his life a sacrifice for us, it says they gave beyond their ability. Beyond their ability. Not just what they had left over. They had a common desire. It's interesting, that word, they were begging earnestly. They wanted so much to be a part of this that Paul, I think, must have said, I don't know if you ought to give. You've got your own issues, your own problems. And they said, no, we beg of you. Please, please, please. Paul had to give in to them. They had a common commitment. They wanted to minister to others in their time of need. Even though it might have caused them sacrifice, they wanted to minister to others in their time of need. I had the privilege not long ago of uh, end of last summer to meet one of our, of our Bridge Fellowship pastors from the southern part of the state, ministering to a church of about 30 on a good Sunday. And in that church, they can't afford a full-time salary, so he is not only a part-time pastor, but he has to work. He had called me and asked me to get back to him, and I was on vacation for two weeks, so I missed his call by over a week and a half, if I remember correctly. And when I called him, I apologized because I felt guilty about that and said, uh, I'm sorry to get back to you. I was on vacation. How about you? How about you and your family? Have you been able to go on vacation or not yet? He said, no, we've not been able to go. Is something planned? No. Tell me what's going on here. He said, we haven't been on a vacation for about three years. I was thinking, okay, this isn't healthy. I'm going to be the new executive director and tell him, you need to take vacation, right? So why not? And he said, well, Doug, um, I have th three jobs. I, I mow lawns in the, in the summer, 
and I shovel and, and do stuff in the winter for people, and I, I do drywall work, and I'm a pastor, and I have to do all three to try to support my family with six kids. If I go away on vacation, I don't have income. He actually also said, and it's hard to find somebody to fill the pulpit if he's gone on Sunday. I wasn't aware that that was going on. My heart goes out to him. We actually have a fall conference coming up in October the 16th or the 18th at Maranatha Missionary and Conference Ground. It's going to be about $500 a, a couple to go, and they get two nights there and all their meals and use of the facilities. But I know guys like that can't afford it. So one thing our leadership has done is that we're going to try to raise funds so that all of our bivocational pastors can come free. That's our commitment. Well, we just had a meeting about a month ago, and this pastor was at the meeting. And he shared in that meeting something that even hit me more. He said this. He's had an opportunity. Another church approached him to go to, to, to interview and to candidate to be their pastor. And that that church actually could afford full-time salary and benefits. Can you imagine how desirable that would be for a man who's working three jobs? And he told them no. And he said, God has burdened me and given me desire to minister to this church family at this time. I believe it's God's will that I stay. You see, he's making sacrifices, gracing that body of believers for the glory of God. That should speak to all of us about what it means to grace others. So these people here have a common desire, a common commitment, and a common responsibility. They are gracing others other believers in their time of need. I notice also in the text there's an antecedent. Why would people grace others? Or why would they give sacrificially beyond their ability? Why would they beg earnestly to do that? If you notice in the text, it also says that they gave of themselves first. And then they gave graciously. You see, when we give ourselves, uh, as Paul says in Romans 12, um, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. That when we consider all that God has done for us and his mercy toward us, that now we give ourselves fully as a living sacrifice. We're putting ourselves on the altar. When we do that, then it's not hard to give up what we possess. That's the easy part. It's giving ourselves that takes place first. That is the antecedent for giving generously, graciously. They gave themselves first. For Bridge Fellowship to be effective, our churches and pastors, individuals must be gracious. We're all busy. We all have responsibilities. We have a church ministry to run here. I get that. We have the same thing at West Canaan. All the things that go on, and yet somehow we have to look outside of our own little circle and say there are also others who have a need, and it's a great need, how can we effectively minister to them? How can we grace them for the glory of God? This is Paul's admonition to the church, and it reveals an appreciation for grace giving, but also an expectation for one local church to help another. Notice down in verse 7 what it says as he's writing to the Corinthians, but as you, church at Corinth, uh, excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That's the admonition, an expectation. 
Yep, you're giving by grace. It's not uh, the law that you're doing the, uh, the reason behind this. It is a commitment because of God's grace toward you to grace others. So here we have this movement going on amongst these churches, the example in Macedon, from Macedonia to the church in Corinth. And now we move on a little bit. We see that the bridging the gap is enhanced by a fellowship of leaders. That what we find in this text is not only one church helping another, believers helping another in another region, but we see pastors, or at this time, apostle and other leaders working together to accomplish this task. Bridge Fellowship has a history of one man caring for all the churches in the fellowship. It's about 600 miles from the far west end of the, 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 the UP all the way down to the southeast end of the lower peninsula. Not only is there a geographical divide, but there are cultural divides. They actually call us trolls. Can you believe that? But they're youpers, so have that. But we have these cultural nuances, and it is so different to minister in the UP in the middle of forest and whatever they have up there, and in a nice town where there are restaurants and hotels all around you. It's a very different context. So for one man to minister to that broad or that diverse of a crowd, we thought as we looked at when Ken retired, is there one man who can meet the needs of all the churches? Pastor Bill said he was more than capable of doing that. We were a little bit stunned by that confidence. He actually didn't do that. We began to talk about it. We said, you know what? There's safety and wisdom in a plurality of leaders. Just as in a church, one man doesn't run at all. In a fellowship of churches, one man can't do it all. Just as Pastor Bill can preach faithfully, but you are dependent on so many other people to minister as the body of Christ and to the body of Christ every Sunday. So we decided let's go with a plurality of leaders for the fellowship that we are now leading. The Apostle Paul, by the way, valued this fellowship of leaders because there's wisdom and safety in this multitude of counselors. He has Titus and the messengers that Titus is working with in chapter 8, verses 16 to 18 and 22 and 23. His first missionary trip to Galatia was Paul and Barnabas. You know Paul's second missionary trip was Paul, Silas, and Timothy you listen to Paul in the New Testament, you find he's always working with younger men, writing to Timothy and to Titus, the pastoral epistles, because he's mentoring, but he's also seeing the value of working in fellowship with others. Now, I would just have to say, if the Apostle Paul found it valuable to have a team of leaders to minister grace to the churches, then you know that our fellowship of churches will be benefited by and should value a plurality of leaders, of teamwork among our leaders. I'm really excited about the New Bridge Fellowship leadership model or paradigm. Uh, right now I'm serving in a halftime role, probably about 25 to 30 hours a week devoted to that. I hope I can do more by the end of the year uh, when we make the transition. But then we also said there are other gifted men in our fellowship who may have specific gifts that could be used in, a, in an area that we have need in our fellowship. So, for instance, we have Andy Molyneux, who is from Mount Pleasant in the center of the state, and Andy has a background with, uh, he's a, biblical, a certified biblical counselor. He's been working on developing his church conflict management. And so we put Andy in the area of, of church health. Healthy churches, whether they're 50 or 500, doesn't really matter. We want churches to be healthy. And Andy is our one who's going to work on that and have that focus in his ministry. How do you develop a healthy church? How do you help a church that's unhealthy get healthy? 
One of the reasons why many churches are unhealthy and decline and dying is they actually have unresolved conflict and they have divided and there are two churches in a small town and the whole community knows that they once used to be one and they don't like each other anymore. If they're going to know we are Jesus' disciples by our love for one another, that's not a great testimony. Another arm that we really need to work on is church leadership development. There is a shortage of men uh, going into vocational ministry right now. There are many reasons for that, but there is a a great need to develop leaders leaders from the body of Christ to minister in the churches that are looking for a pastor. You know what that's like right now as you are considering transition. It's hard to find other men who are looking for a transition or to pastor another church. About a little over a month ago, I was in Everett, Michigan, And in Everett, they were honoring their pastor, Scott Farrell, for 20 years of ministry, which they should do, and they did well. And they had the chairman of the search committee 20 years ago come up and talk. He made a statement that just kind of blew me away early on. As he started talking about the process, he said, we'd never done this before, and so we asked for some resumes, and we got over 50 resumes right away. In contrast... When Ken transitioned and passed things along to me, he gave me, I think it was six resumes of pastors looking for ministry. I contacted them. Two of them were already in process with a church. Two of them, I'm not sure, were ready for ministry. That meant we had about two that were actively looking and possibly ready to go compared to 50 20 years ago. We need to address that, and we want to address it. But not just leaders vocationally, but leaders in the local church. Are you training up men and women to become leaders? Are you giving them opportunities to serve in the body of Christ? One of the things I've noted as I've been involved in going to other churches, uh, the ones that are in decline and dying are one generation. And they're typically average age somewhere between 80 and 120. I don't know where they end up. Some look older than others. But they say we don't have any young people, we don't have any children, we don't have any families. How do we grow? And we're all tired Something happened there, didn't it? So we want to work on how do we train leaders and then give them opportunity to serve and lead every generation having a part in the body of Christ. Our third arm is working, and that's Kelly Fath, by the way, who's at West Cannon on the west side of the state. Then we have Kevin uh, Moses, who's over in Lapeer, and he's working on pastoral fellowship. How do we help pastors who are isolated geographically in a small church overwhelmed and burdened in life and they have nobody to talk about or talk about it with in their, from, uh, among their peers. So we want to encourage more relationship between pastors to encourage one another and to pray with one another. And when a problem begins to arise, to be able to address that before the problem becomes a big problem. So that's what we're doing. Those three men and myself are our new team and we're enjoying working together. They're all younger, which helps bring my average age down uh, to be with them. I try to bring maturity to the uh, table. They bring excitement and vision to the table. Each one of those guys, however, is going to also add about five to ten people on his team that are also concerned about helping in those areas. They have a desire and giftedness there and are distributed geographically from the UP down to the bottom of the lower peninsula. So that we don't have to have one guy traveling all over the state. When we have a problem, we have a team that can begin to address that and hopefully somebody who's close by geographically to do that. Bridging the gap is enhanced when we have a fellowship of leaders working together. And finally, bridging the gap uh, means sharing a common goal. 
that we want to do something in our fellowship that is going to accomplish something really desirable. And that is, our desire is to bring glory to God. Somehow, through our fellowship of churches, we want to bring pleasure to God and actually to make him happy, and this text helps us to see that. In chapter 9, as we go forward a little bit, we go down to verse 6. You can see what I'm talking about here. Paul says, the point is this. We're going to start the application part. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound to every good work as it is written. So we want to look, first of all, at this idea that God loves a cheerful giver. That is true individually, that we ought to be just joyfully almost laughing, right? You've heard this. Putting our gifts in the offering or giving a grace gift to somebody else, it just brings joy to our heart to do that. Well, notice when we do that, God also gets pleasure out of that. He delights in, he loves cheerful grace givers. It's not only true individually, but corporately. He's writing to a body of believers here. Giving to other churches makes God happy. How much gracing can you afford? I don't know, but I know this. You'll never outgive God. His grace, his ability to provide is way beyond what we could ever do. And so we don't have to worry about the other end of that. We just obey, we follow along, we give graciously, and God is able to take care of us. A fellowship of churches is not only committed to making God happy or pleasing him, but is committed to glorify God. Don't miss a little something going on in the background here. Gentiles are reaching out to minister to Jews. You say, well, that's not a big deal. We should do that. Yeah, well, in the early church, that was a big issue. Primarily coming from the Jews who are saying, how can we allow Gentiles to come in? They are not the people of God. They're not Israel. Well, now we see that this barrier is being broken down, not only with the gospel going out to the Gentiles, but the Gentiles participating in helping the Jews. But more than that, we see this. The fruit is being produced by the churches is really awesome. Gracious givers produce those who give thanks Not to the one who gave, but to God. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 9. That these people who are receiving the gift to meet their needs so that they could make it through life are not just thanking those who gave the gift, they're thanking God because they see God's providence in bringing the the resolution to their need from Macedonia all the way to them. Not only that, but you notice in verse 14, gracious giving will produce fellowship amongst God's people. Now those who receive the gift are not only thanking God, but it says they are praying for you constantly. When they know that you have given to them, and I'm sure Berean has had this experience many times, as you've blessed others and given and taken care of others, they turn around and they pray for you in your ministry. That's the fellowship that we have now, a spiritual connection with them, fellowship because of Jesus Christ and gracious giving. And finally, gracious giving images and therefore glorifies our gracious God. The book ends to this, these two chapters, verse 1 of chapter 8, the grace of God. The end of chapter 9, verse 15, the grace, the grace of God. This is what God desires, and when we are gracious, we reflect the God who is gracious to others. 
My goal, the leadership team goal for Bridge Fellowship, is to please and to glorify God in and through the church of Jesus Christ. On behalf of the Bridge Fellowship, I just want to thank you for your active role in blessing others. Financially, allowing your pastor to serve and devote time to that, you are a blessing, and uh, we are so thankful for that. But as I close, though our fellowship has a rich history and a solid foundation, we must acknowledge that there's a need for renewal. It's estimated right now that 75%, 80% of the churches in Bridge Fellowship are in a state of decline or dying. They've already had their greatest days, and they're on the way down. Every year, about four to 7,000 churches in the United States close their doors permanently. We're not the only movement that has a problem here. The Southern Baptist Convention put out a report. They said about 90% of their churches nationally are in a state of decline or dying as well. Think about this, though, in our fellowship specifically. If we have around 150 churches and 75 to 80% of them are in a state of decline or dying, we have to be realistic and say if something isn't done to stop this, in 10 years, there could be about 100, 120 churches that close their doors in communities where they were a light to the community. A church planted at one time and needed help. Nobody helped them. That's what we want to do. That's why we're devoted to do this. 120 churches that may have survived with a little help, a little grace, a little encouragement to give them hope. God kept his word, and they were built back to strength. I am all in for a missions program intent upon bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. My burden now is not only to Jerusalem, where I was at West Canaan, and Judea, Samaria, but the uttermost parts of the earth. But let's not forget that missions includes the state of Michigan. That's why we're doing Bridge Fellowship for the glory of God. Pastor Bill.